this morning begins in the Gospel of John, chapter 7. Chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. Hear the word of the Lord. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. We'll turn now to 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 13 through 39. Now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze, and he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill for doing any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and performed all his work, and he fashioned the two pillars of bronze. Eighteen cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of twelve cubits measured the circumference of both. And he also made two capitals of molten bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of the one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. There were nets of network and twisted threads of chain work for the capitals, which were on top of the pillars, seven for the one capital and seven for the other capital. So he made the pillars and two rows around on the one network to cover the capitals, which were on the top of the pomegranates. And so he did for the other capital. And the capitals which were on the top of the pillars in the porch were of lily design, four cubits. And there were capitals on the two pillars, even above and close to the rounded projection, which was beside the network. And the pomegranates numbered 200 in rows around both capitals. Thus he set up the pillars at the porch of the nave, and he set up the right pillar and named it Jachin, and he set up the left pillar and named it Boaz. And on the top of the pillars was lily design, so the work of the pillars was finished. Now he made the sea of cast metal ten cubits from brim to brim, circular in form, and its height was five cubits and thirty cubits in circumference. And under its brim gourds went around encircling it ten to a cubit, completely surrounding the sea. The gourds were in two rows cast with the rest. It stood on the twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. And the sea was set on top of them, and all their rear parts turned inward. And it was a handbreadth thick, and its brim was made like the brim of a cup, as a lily blossom. It could hold two thousand baths. Then he made the ten stands of bronze. The length of each stand was four cubits, and the width four cubits, and its height three cubits. And this was the design of the stands. They had borders, even borders between the frames. And on the borders, which were between the frames, were lions, oxen, and cherubim. And on the frames there was a pedestal above, and beneath the lions and oxen were wreaths of hanging work. Now each stand had four bronze wheels with bronze axles, and its four feet had supports. Beneath the basin were cast supports with wreaths at each side. And its opening inside the crown at the top was a cubit, and its opening was, around, was round like the design of a pedestal, a cubit and a half. And also on its opening there were engravings, and the borders were square, not round. And the four wheels were underneath the borders, and the axles of the wheels were on the stand. And the height of a wheel was a cubit and a half. 
And the workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axles, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all cast. Now there were four supports at the four corners of each stand. Its supports were part of the stand itself. And on the top of the stand, there was a circular form, half a cubit high. And on the top of the stand, it stays, uh, it stays and its borders were part of it. And he engraved on the plates of its stays and on its borders, cherubim, lions, and palm trees, according to the clear space on each, with wreaths all around. He made the ten stands like this. All of them had one casting, one measure, and one form. And he, made ten, and he made ten basins of bronze. One basin held forty baths. Each basin was four cubits, and on each of the ten stands was one basin. Then he set the stands, five on the right side of the house, and five on the left side of the house. And he set the sea of cast metal on the right side of the house, eastward toward the south. Now we'll turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 46. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth, he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you that you speak to us in the person of Jesus Christ through the Spirit. You speak to us in the written word that's been recorded down through the ages and preserved for us. We thank you that we are people who live in a time who hold a copy of your word in our hands and thus individually and at home we can read your word and think about it and know you it was not so in ages past we thank you in addition that we can come together as your people on the lord's day and ascend into your presence by the holy spirit and hear a word from you bless us in your word we pray in christ's name Amen. Water is an important theme in the Bible. It opens with water. The first three days of creation have to do with water. On the first day, the earth was recreated and it was enveloped in the deep. On the second day, the waters were divided, waters below and waters above. And on the third day, 
the land and the waters were separated. When you come to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22, again, we deal with water. We deal with water in 21 in that there is no more sea. And in 22, a river flows from the throne of God, which is in the midst of the bride, the city of Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. And in between those two chapters, this theme of water is developed in a multivalent way. There's not one symbol that water is. There are many symbols. For example, when you come to the tabernacle in the temple, you have a laver at the tabernacle, and at the temple, you have a bronze sea that is huge. In 1 Kings, it says 2,000 baths. In 2 Chronicles, it says 3,000 baths, however many gallons of water that may be. And in the temple, now you have not one laver, but you've added 10 lavers. So the temple now has a bronze sea that matched with the laver, only much larger from the tabernacle. And in addition, you have two rows of chariots of water, each chariot carrying a laver that holds 40 baths. It's estimated that each of these chariots weighed over a ton. They weren't movable. They had wheels. It's a picture, but it's all about water. When you make your way through the book of Genesis, all the way down to Jesus Christ, you discover that wells of water are very important. So that Abraham, through his servant, finds a wife for Isaac at a well of water. Jacob finds a wife for himself at a well of water. Moses finds a wife for himself at a well of water. Jesus offers himself as the true groomsman to the bride at a well of water. Wells of water are where marriages take place, and they are a picture of the fecundity of a woman. They give life. Ah, there are so many other depictions of springs of water, rivers of water. The Bible is full of water, and of course we need water to live. And consequently, a base idea about water is it gives life. There are the waters above upon which God's throne sits as we see in Exodus chapter 24 and as we see in Revelation chapter 4, a crystal sea. And there are the waters below that throughout the Bible become expressive of the uproar of the Gentiles, not at rest, causing trouble. Water everywhere in the Bible. And so when you come to the tabernacle and then its mighty increase in size and glory in the temple, these uh, pictures of water become important. And they are pictures of the giving of life. So at the tabernacle, there was a laver. We're not told what size that laver was. It was not nearly as big as the bronze sea. But what we are told about the laver is it was made out of the looking glasses of the women. In other words, wells are pictures of women. And so it is at the tabernacle. 
And what one does as a priest is when you come on duty and you've walked through the dust on your way to the tabernacle, you come in and you wash your feet at the laver. You have to be clean because the dust outside the tabernacle carries a curse, a curse of death. And so you clean that death off of you in life-giving water. Of course, you don't stick your feet in the laver. You probably could have because that would defile the labor then. Instead, someone takes a bucket of water, a, a, uh, some kind of vessel of water, and you wash your feet. Not only that, not only that, the water at the labor is used for the washing of the ascension offerings. So the ascension, this throat was slit and the blood was poured out and gathered in a basin, and the animal died in your place. And the priest splashed the blood around the bronze altar, on the sides of the bronze altar, and you would skin that ascension, and you would cut it up. And the priest would arrange the head and other parts on the fire that has the wood on it, on top of the wood. And you would take the feet of the animal, the legs, and wash them with laver water because this animal arranged on the fire is going to be transformed into smoke and it is a substitute, a picture of you going up to be with God. And to go up and be with God, you have to be clean. You need life. And the water cleans you and you go up and you get life. When you come to the temple, it's done differently. At the temple, you as a priest, wash your hands and feet in the great bronze sea. The sea itself is seven and a half feet tall, then sitting on the backs of 12 oxen, three facing each direction of the compass, with their hinder parts inside the sea seated on it. So it's very high. Somebody has to climb up and they're reminded as they climb. Now we're not talking, we're talking about water above. Somebody's got to climb up and use a vessel and bring it down so you can wash your hands and your feet as you go on duty. But now this huge basin that has replaced the laver of water, this bronze sea, no longer do you use the water out of that to... Uh, cleanse the ascensions. Instead, now you draw water for the ascensions out of the ten chariots that have a laver on them. Again, you don't stick the feet and legs of the animal into the basin. Instead, someone brings water to you and you wash the feet and the legs in the basin and then it goes on the fire and you ascend up to God. Now, why? is there 10 chariots. It's an added dimension. It's a greater picture. It's drawing out, showing us the, the uh, cosmology of the Bible in the Old Testament. The cosmology has changed. Now we're talking about a literary cosmology. The cosmology has changed, but from the tabernacle to the temple, the cosmology didn't change. And so these 10 chariots are lined up in front of the shoulders, it says in the Hebrew, 
of the temple. Because the temple and the tabernacle, they have terms like feet and shoulders and ribs because they picture a person. And so you set these two rows of five chariots on each side at the front, off to the side of the porch where the shoulders of the temple are and they're lined up towards the bronze altar where the sacrifices take place. And this is a picture. They're on wheels. They're not movable. They're on wheels to draw a picture to let you know that water comes from above the sea. It comes from the throne. And that's what we discover in Revelation in the bride city that has a throne in it, that is God's throne, to which Jesus says, the one who overcomes, he will sit with me in my throne as I sit with my father in his throne. There's this throne in this bride city. Who's the bride? The church is the bride. Always the church is the bride. And so in this temple, you walk your way up into the throne room. You're not allowed to go there. And God is enthroned above the Ark of the Covenant, the testimony, on top of the wings of the cherubim. Now, not two, but four. And he is above the sea. And where does the water come from? It comes from the throne room. It's water from above. It's God's water. It's quite something. So down below you have a sea, and the sea is representative through the Old Testament and into the book of Revelation for the Gentile nations that are roaring and raging. And even as we read in the psalm, they're trying to do the mountains in, and the mountains have to do with Israel. But up above is this, this sea that on day two God separated by the firmament heavens. And water comes out from above. And it's pictured in chariots that come down and they line up as a picture. Water's coming down, it's brought to the altar, they turn around and they go back up. And water comes down and it goes to the altar and they turn around and they go back up. Water comes from above because where God is, who God is, is the life-giving source of the supply of water. It's uh, interesting, the book of Revelation, you know that there are all kinds of interpretations and uh, probably not everybody in this room agrees on everything about the book of Revelation. If you would listen to me, I could set you straight, but that's unlikely to happen. But Revelation is divided, oh, there are just so many different outlines you could give for the book of Revelation, and they're all divinely intended. But there's one that sticks out, and it divides the book of Revelation into four sections, and it is most informative. It helps you understand a few things that we need to understand about water. So, John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he hears a voice like many waters. 
And that encompasses chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Revelation. Then in chapter 4, John hears a voice like calling him to come up, and he is caught up in the spirit and hears a voice like many waters. And that encompasses chapters 4, 5, and 6, all the way down through chapter 16. Then in Revelation chapter 17, this is written. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit, into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having, having seven heads and ten horns. And then it goes on to describe this woman who's caused immorality throughout the earth and caught up in the spirit. So, chapter 1 in the Spirit, chapter 4 in the Spirit, chapter 17 in the Spirit. In chapter 17, this section encompasses 17, 18, 19, and 20 through chapter 21, verse 8. Then comes the final section of in the Spirit in the book of Revelation. And I want to read that to you, just part of that. Chapter 21, verse 9. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls, notice the same as chapter 17, full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife, of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like very like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And then the rest of the chapter just goes on to describe this beautiful, immense city. And this beautiful, immense city is 1,200 stadia cubed, which in our Bibles is translated as 1,500 miles. It's 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles tall. It's a cube. And so you know right away, having read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, knowing about the tabernacle and the temple, that a cube like this is a picture of the Holy of Holies. This is where God lives. Where does he live? 
He lives in the new Jerusalem that comes down of heaven. What is the new Jerusalem? It's his wife. Now, what does that tell you? Right away, what does that tell you? It tells you that chapter 21 of Revelation into chapter 22, verse 5, is symbolic. It is not literal. It's symbolic. It is a literary wife picturing who? Well, the church. And this woman is a beautiful woman, if you can speak of a woman in terms of a city with walls and gates and foundation stones. But that's what, this, that's what it does. This is not a literal city. Uh-oh. Twenty-one, verse one says this. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be, there shall no longer be any uh, mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he uh, said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirst from the springs of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unfaithful and the abominable, murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part, their inheritance will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, I just want you to notice something. 
because this is where we need a, a little help. If, if you know Revelation, well, you know parts of it. But when you come to chapter 19, what do you see? At chapter 6, you see the first seal open. There's a white horse rider. You come to chapter 19, and there's this, this praise in heaven because the harlot has been defeated, and the bride has made herself ready, and she's wearing white linen, which are the, her righteous deeds. And then you see a white horse rider coming out with people following behind on white horses, and we get a description of his mouth and his head and his robes. And then you come to chapter 20. And in chapter 20, you get the description of what we call the millennium. And at the end of chapter 20, there is another battle with Satan who is set loose and he's destroyed. And then comes the judgment seat. Then comes chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. The chapter division is in the wrong place. Because in the Spirit starts in chapter 17, and in the Spirit starts in chapter 21, verse 9. In the Spirit. The first paragraph of chapter 21 belongs with chapter 20. Why? Because here's the order. The harlot is defeated. The white horse rider rides out with his host army in victory celebration. In chapter 20, the... Uh, the the, the Satan is confined and the saints reign for a thousand years. Then he's set free and there's a battle and he is thrown into the lake of fire and there's a judgment seat of judgment. And that's exactly what you would expect at the end, the judgment seat. And then comes the last paragraph, which is what? Well, it's what we call the second coming. It's pictured in terms of a city that comes down, a new Jerusalem. The second coming is not chapter 19. The second coming is chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. That is the second coming. And in the second coming, he says, I'm making all things new. And there's a new heavens and a new earth that come down, and there is no more See, I can remember listening to a message by John Piper and he was reading this passage. He says, you know, I, I'm going to have to be transformed because I just can't live without the sea. Friends, we're not going to live without the sea because it's talking about the waters above. What separates the heavens of heavens from you? The waters above. And when you get rid of the waters above, heaven and earth are joined together. That's what 21, 1 through 8 is. A picture of heaven coming to earth. And then you come to 21, verse 9, and there's a, a new, another angel who had one of the seven bulls. And he says, come, let me show you the wife of the lamb. And again, here comes this city down. But as you read it, you think, okay, okay, this is, this is heaven. This is what people call heaven. No, 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 no. This is heaven and earth joined together. We're on the earth. We, we, haven't, we, we rise from the dead at the end of chapter 20. And in chapter 21, we're in this, we're in this city that's come to the earth. 21, 1 through 8, 
is the second coming, the end. Everything's made new. But then when you come to the last part of 21, 9 through the end of the chapter, and the first part of 22, 1 through 5, you're getting a description of this city. But now this city has the same thing that Caleb gave to us out of Ezekiel chapter 47. It has a river of water that's coming down from the throne. And it goes down on, uh, and the street is on both sides. And there are trees on both sides. And the trees give off 12 kinds of fruit every month. And the leaves are what? For the healing of nations. Now wait a minute. Wait a minute. If there's no more crying and there's no more death, there's no more mourning, there's no more pain, what is there to heal? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because the end comes at 21, 1 through 8. That's where the end comes. 21, 9 to the end is a description pictorially in a literary fashion of where you and I live right now. Right now. Because the heavens have already come down. Now, obviously, there's a already but not yet because this vast description of this bride, which is the church, is well, it is beautiful, lavish. It's not what the church is right now. We don't measure up to this. But this is where we live. When the end comes, the very end, then, then, there'll be no more death. There'll be no more pain, no mourning, no crying then everything will be made new. But we're living in a time that's described in 21.9 and following where things are being made new. And the church is being sanctified so that she may be spotless, having no wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. So that at the end, when it says this city comes down and it's a wife prepared for her, we will be prepared. We're not quite there. We're, we're in the process. So what happened is when Jesus entered into heaven, then all the stuff in Revelation begins to unfold. And at A.D. 70, the stuff in Revelation is fulfilled, except for the end times. I mean, it's, it's all set in motion, except for the end time. And now we're waiting for that end. But in the meantime, the city has come down. And in that city is a river, just like Ezekiel. So think about this now. You have, you have a tabernacle with just a small laver of water. Then you have a temple that has this brass bronze 
sea, and, and you have the ten chariots of water, and then you come to Ezekiel's temple. And Ezekiel's temple is just a visionary temple. It was not intended to be built. What you would call it is a literary temple to encourage the people. This is what the temple is going to become. And when you get to the end of Revelation, then you see what that temple is going to become. But what, what Ezekiel's temple had is it didn't have a laver. It didn't have ten chariots of water with a bronze sea. What it had was something that came out of the sanctuary. And the sanctuary is the Holy of Holies. It's where the throne is. And it started out as a trickle, just a little trickle. And it came down through the temple, and then it proceeded east. And as it moved, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. That doesn't happen. That's abnormal. But that's what it's describing because it comes from the sanctuary. And first it's ankle deep, then it's knee deep, then it's loin deep, then you got to swim. And then it goes down to the Dead Sea, that sea that became the Dead Sea because it was judged from Sodom and Gomorrah. And it brings life to the sea. And in this sea are all kinds of fish and men fishing on the banks of the sea, drawing in the catch. And there are trees alongside that river that bring forth 12 kinds of fruit. And its leaves are for healing. You see, the end of Ezekiel is bringing us down to the end of Revelation. It's very much the same picture. Except now we have a picture of men who are fishing. Fishing in a river that comes out of the sanctuary. And in that river are fish. But of course, this river flows and becomes the sea. And when you have fish in the sea, what do you have? You have Gentiles. And Gentiles are being fished out of the sea into the net of Christ. And they become believers. That is the picture. That's what's happening in the book of Revelation. The harlot Jerusalem called Babylon and Egypt and Sodom is judged. The woman that was corrupting the whole earth, the woman that was intended to be the bride of Christ, disdained him and chose Caesar instead, and she is judged. And now a new bride is emerging. And by the end of the book, Come, let me show you the wife of the lamb. Well, so you, then you expect a picture of somebody who's got a beautiful face and long flowing hair and beautiful. Now, what you get is a city. A city. Because the tabernacle had shoulders and ribs. The temple had shoulders and ribs and feet and hands. In fact, the picture is of the ten chariots the, well, we don't know what kind of figure. Maybe it's a cherubim with an ox face and a cherubim with a lion face. We're not quite sure. But in the end, you have the cherubim holding up the sea. That is, they're holding up the waters above. It's quite something, this picture. And in the midst of all of this is this water. First, the water comes down from above. That's all the picture. Now the city has come down, and the throne of God is among men, and the water flows out from that throne, and he says, hey, 
you can come and you can drink freely. Hey, you can come and you can eat from the tree along that river. It has fruit for life. It has leaves that are for the healing of the nations. It reminds me of a brother we used to have in our assembly who had ginkgo trees in his yard, and he would just go out in his yard and pick leaves and eat them. That's the picture. And all of this is sourced in the water because when you have trees along a river, the water's giving the supply that makes the tree grow and flourish. And all of this is, well, on one hand, it's the city that comes down. On the other hand, it's described as the woman. On the other hand, it's where the throne of God is. What is it? Well, I'm telling you what it is. It's the church. Where is the throne of God? Well, the throne of God is in the church. He rules the church. Here we are scattered throughout the world, and we are this city growing in beauty. And just like a well describes a woman and the fact that she gives life, so does a river. A river is the picture of giving birth to life. And that's what happens in this city that is all over the globe in little churches here and there, all over the globe. What does the church do? It's what I've been telling you for years now. Some of you don't like it. You think it's Catholic. You cannot have God as your father unless you have the church as your mother. Even Galatians tells us our mother is the Jerusalem from above. Now, we live in a time where, you know, it's your little private faith that gives you eternal life, and you're good to go, and it doesn't matter if you belong to a church or not. Well, after all, you're baptized in the Spirit, so you're part of the church. But that, although that's true, that's not the Bible's picture. The picture is, we are the church, and we're going around out there, and what do we have to offer? Life-giving water. Where does it come from? It comes from the throne room. In the Old Testament, it was a laver, a bronze altar, chariots of water, and then finally, a river out of the temple in Ezekiel chapter 47. That's what it is. Now, just to give you a sense of that, turn, if you would, to Psalm chapter 36. Psalms 36. Psalm 36, verses 1 through 4, is uh, about the ungodly. Psalm 36, 5 through 9, is a different story. Thy loving kindness, O Yahweh, extends to the heavens. Thy faithfulness reaches to the skies. Thy righteousness is like the mountain of God, like the mountains of God. Thy judgments are like a great deep, O Yahweh. Thou preservest man and beast. How precious is thy loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take uh, the children of men take refuge in the shadow of thy wings. Now, 
What does that tell you where we are? The shadow of thy wings is in the holy room where the wings are stretched out and God is enthroned upon them. They drink their fill of the abundance of thy house and thou dost give them to drink of the river of thy delights. What? You go into the house, and in the house, you drink. What are you drinking? Well, when you get to Ezekiel, you're drinking the water of life, a river coming out of the throne. When you come to Revelation, what are you drinking? You're drinking the water of life that comes out of the throne. They drink their fill of the abundance of thy house. Now, a couple of things to notice. Drink their fill is the word for getting drunk. They are drunk with the abundance of thy house. The word abundance is a word for oil, fatness. And then, then he goes on. And thou dost give them to drink of the river of thy delights. The word delights here is the word Eden. Genesis chapter 13, verse 10. Lot and Abram are separating, and Lot looks and he sees the place he wants to go is well watered, like the garden of God. That's the picture here. So what the psalmist is saying, okay, so all these ungodly people, they're raging, they're upset, they're in trouble, they hate you, but what about us? Well, here's what it's like. We come into your holy place and in your holy place, we take shelter under the shadow of your wings. And what do we do? We drink the fatness of your river that gives us the delights of Eden. There is no river. No river in the tabernacle when this was written. There's no river in the temple when this was written. So what is it? Well, the river clearly is God himself. That's the idea. We drink you. That's the picture. Turn to uh, Psalm 46. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Then just jump down to verse 7. The Lord of hosts is, uh, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. I just want you to notice those two ideas go together because he's forming a chiasm. Look at verses two and three. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and Though the mountain and, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains, uh, 
though the mountains quake at its, uh, at its swelling pride, Selah. Then just jump down to verse 6. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when God will help her when morning comes. Whoops, I read five, sorry. The nations, the nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. So just notice how verses 2 and 3 and verse 6 go together. It's talking about the nations, and the nations are this sea that's in uproar. So on the outside, you have God. He's a refuge in strength. You move in two spaces on either side, and what do you have? You have a picture of the nations who are like a sea, who are trying to drag the mountain down. The mountain is Israel. And then, right in the middle, you have verses 4 and 5. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. There's a river. The streams make this city glad. What is he talking about? Well, in this section of the Psalms, he's talking about the new Jerusalem. There is no river in Jerusalem. Zion and Jerusalem have no river. What is the river? Well, it's God enthroned in his holy place. And, and at the tabernacle, it just looks like a little laver of water. And then you go over to the temple, and all of a sudden, it's not just a little laver. It's this huge sea, and then chariots of water coming from the throne room out to the altar. And then you get to Ezekiel chapter 47. And now it's a river that starts at the throne. And first it's ankle deep, then shin deep, then loin deep. And then all of a sudden you've got to swim. And it goes out to the Dead Sea and it brings life. And there are all kinds of fish in this living water and trees by the water giving forth fruit and leaves for healing. And men are fishing, drawing in the fish, the Gentiles. This roaring sea that is uproaring against God's people becomes part of God's people. And you come to Revelation and you get the picture correct. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. New heavens, new earth. No more sea, no more pain, no more death, no more crying. All things are made new. The end has come. And then comes that last in the spirit. Come, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Let me show you the wife, the bride of the lamb. And here's this beautiful picture of a city and in that city is God's throne and on that throne is God the Father God the Son and you 
reigning and ruling forever. And so God is the source of the water, but he uses means, and the means is the church. And what we have to offer to the world is life. Not just little life, big life. Because the psalmist said, we're drunk on the abundance of your water. It's oil, it's fatness, it gives life. No, we need a new vision, a big vision, because the city that we're in that is being glorified and beautified is a big city. And this city sends forth water like no other water. So that can, Jesus can say, I mean, here's a, here's a temple and a river comes out of it. And Jesus can say, he who believes on me, out of his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. What is he talking about? He's talking about that picture that comes all the way from Ezekiel down to Revelation. And it is... The mother, Jerusalem, the church that has life. A woman to give life. Of course, every woman that gives life has a man. And so do we. The Lord Jesus Christ, our husband. Let's stand and pray. Lord God, increase our faith because the source of who we are comes from the throne and we are like a river that flows forth and proverbs excuse me psalm 1 explains that to us we're like trees planted by the river of waters that bring forth their fruit and their season and their leaf doesn't wither and whatever they do prospers help us to think that way pray that way believe that way and give life that way, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.